Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. And good evening. <laughs> Here we go. And ding. <laughs> and ding. And ding. Everybody doing all right? <laughs> All right, you can get your worship guides out, and we're going to continue our series in just a second. Look on version or your, get your Bibles. We're going to look at Luke chapter 16 will be our key text this morning. Uh, before I start, I just want to plug a couple of things. Number one, we have a prayer meeting coming up uh, July 27th. That's a Saturday here. I believe it's either in the Sanctuary of the Lower Auditorium. I was supposed to get a flyer. I don't have the flyer. It's downstairs in the Lower Auditorium. Uh, Joni, what time is that? 9 to 12, we have a corporate church-wide prayer meeting. We believe that, you know, prayer availeth much. It's so important that our church prays together. Stay tuned for more information on that. We'll have a flyer as you're going out the door to help make that clear to you. Also want to uh, just let you know, um, well, first I'll just say this. I was in the Dominican Republic this last week. That's why I wasn't here on Sunday. I think I mentioned that. How many were here this last Sunday? All right, raise your hand. Was it a good service? Yeah? That preacher was pretty good, wasn't he, that guest speaker? It's pretty good. Not too bad. Anyway, uh, but I went to the Dominican Republic uh, on a missions trip with Lifesong and Connect uh, Youth. It was an awesome kind of marriage and merger of two churches going on the mission field. We have, if you don't know this, we have a, we have a mission in the Dominican Republic. We have a home there that uh, services uh, churches all over the United States uh, on a continuous basis, not just Connect or Lifesong, but churches all over the country. Um, it's an awesome, awesome experience. Uh, going there this last week just uh, opened, enlarged my heart again uh, for, for missions. It always does. And uh, I got to honestly say, I'm happy to be home, but I'm sad to leave the Dominican. It was uh, um, just so rewarding. I had the opportunity. You can put the picture on the screen. These are some of the, is it already up there? These are some of my, the team that I was with, and some of these young people were just absolutely phenomenal uh, sharing their faith. We did street ministry. We did vacation Bible school. We had about 160 kids every single day, every single outreach that we ministered. Sometimes we did three outreaches in one day. And so we would go sometimes 12-hour days, just non... By the way, if you, if you want to work, you go with the youth. <laughs> and so, I mean, I was exhausted every single night. And uh, I told the Dominicans, I go down there to lose weight because you just sweat and just work and sweat. And, uh, but it was uh, amazing, uh, vacation Bible schools and outreaches on the streets and, and, and you know, kind of giving to the community. And we went to the kind of real impoverished areas, but up into the mountains. Just awesome, awesome time. So if you ever want to make an impact, you know, in another part of the world, I highly recommend it. We, uh, we sponsor trips all throughout the year through Connect Community Church. We have a ladies' mission trip coming up in October. If you want more information about that, you can see my mom, or there's several women in the church that are going and have been there many times, or you can see me, and I'll point you in the right direction. Uh, Deb Erickson, uh, I don't know, other, other women that are going on the ladies' trip, raise your hand if you're going. Okay, Leslie here in the front. So if you're interested, it is a life changer. I think everybody should go at least once, and um, it's a tremendous, tremendous investment. It will change you as much as it will change uh, the Dominican. Or, uh, so amen to that. Praise the Lord. Everybody good? <clears throat> All right, we're going to get going in our series. Uh, again, Luke 16 is our key text. The series premise has been this. Uh, that the last days is not just about the last days, the sequence, although I'm kind of uh, unpacking pieces of that 
as it relates to uh, prophetic occurrences. But it's not just the sequence, but it's the last day's uh, situation as it relates to you personally. And this is just kind of a, a perspective that God gave me in forming this kind of series. And I want to prepare you individually for your last days. We don't know, or your last day, we don't know when our last day is. And so what will happen? How will it go down um, for us personally? What do we need to be prepared for? And so in week one, I answered a tough question, a question that people have thought, people have verbalized. Most occasions have verbalized it in an accusatory way, uh, which uh, is unfortunate. But basically, the, the question is, why would a loving God ever send anybody to hell? <clears throat> and we answered that question week one, and I highly recommend that you get that CD or, look, or listen to our podcast online because it is very, very helpful to, uh, for you to have that question answered. Fundamentally, it's answered by an, a question, a question answered with a question, and that is, how could we reject a loving God? And just seeing things through God's eyes. Last week, we, uh, we talked about some easy questions regarding heaven. And just kind of a top 10, uh, there were a lot of different things we could talk about. I generated, <clears throat> apparently, some uh, more questions because my, when I got back from the Dominican, my Facebook is plastered with special messages to the pastor. So it's going to take me a while to get back to those, and I will endeavor to do so. Um, but today's message is perhaps the toughest message as far as how to deliver that I've ever preached to a crowd. And so I ask you to, to really... Um, you know, pray for me. I've actually, uh, you know, struggled with this, this one for a while. Um, there's nothing in my heart, you know, as I'm communicating uh, this reality that is meant to be condemning, uh, condescending, uh, manipulative, anything like that. Uh, and if you don't know me, if you're new here, gosh, I pray the Holy Spirit convey this to you. But my true motivation is actually to truly motivate you to search the scriptures, to search uh, your own heart, to find the heart of God and just follow the truth. That's really what I want. And, and I cannot, uh, for, for there's, there's, there's like three groups of people in this room. And this may not be 100% accurate, but there's a group of people that, that trust their pastor, trust the church, and know that I'm going to teach the Bible, and that just kind of settles it, you know? And even maybe a tough message, that just, that's just the way it's going to, that's okay. And then there's another group of people that I don't believe that. I just don't believe that and kind of have our own opinions, kind of our, our, a mixture of Bible and, and, and a mixture of Google and, and their own homemade personal religion. And, and, and then there's a population of people that have kind of a, a, a preoccupation with um, knowledge. You know, the Bible says knowledge puffeth up, but love buildeth up. Where we just, they, they have, they're, they're debaters and they're argumentative and, and they find... Uh, different, I'm just going to call them minority reports, that attempt to rebuttals against classical orthodox Christianity, and they'll, they'll reject it in its totality. But just suffice it to say, this message has been, uh, until recent years, accepted as responsible, even though confrontational. And, and most um, <clears throat> hybrid, I'm going to talk about my dad now, hybrid positions and, and postulates and things like that are usually a result of misinformation, uh, improper motivation, which is a lot of it, 
of the carriers of such message that I'm going to give you. And, and I just want to say that Jesus is our example this morning as I deliver this message. Are you tracking with me out there? So let's just pray again real quick. Would you do that with me? Father God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit be present, your presence be present in this room, and that no person uh, hear this uh, through, hear me, but they hear you. They hear you. They hear the heart of God. And that you simply want to prepare us and make us aware of things to come. And I ask, Lord, that you open our eyes and you open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, without further ado, today I'm going to talk about the subject of hell, H-E double hockey sticks. Uh, It's a tough message. Uh, You may say I already talked about that. No, I just answered a question about hell. I didn't talk about hell, the reality of hell, the place of hell, what what the Bible says about that. Uh, I believe it was a tough message for Jesus, too. Uh, a lot tougher than, you know, um, maybe for me than it was for Jesus, but, but Jesus talked about hell, uh, believe it or not. In fact, he preached about hell 33 times. In a th- he had a three-year ministry, so it wasn't until 30 years old that he started his ministry. He was in preparation prior to that, and from 30 to 30, he talked about hell 33 times. Uh, he actually talked about hell more than he did heaven. I believe he did that because he was so desperate to make sure nobody would go there. And, and it's interesting because if you think about this, you know, uh, if you heard a message on hell once a month, you might not go to my church. You might not go to Jesus' church either. But he talked about it a lot. And he talked about it, um, I think, with a, with a heart of compassion, not of condemnation. And I want the motivation to come through today before you reject this message. I would just say, again, please just hear it all the way through. And then in the end, I hope for those that can't re- or have a hard time receiving it, that you'll just think this question, what if that's true? Or what if he's right? What if he's right? Because the Bible references this subject 167 times in the scriptures. And many pastors and theologians and seminarians and uh, you know, Bible teachers are distancing themselves more and more from the doctrine of the position of hell today. Some are even denying its existence altogether at an alarming rate. In fact, uh, I saw a recent survey or poll that 35% of Baptists, this is incredible to think about this, but 35% of Baptists, 54% of Presbyterians, 58% of Methodists, 68% of Episcopalians do not believe in a literal hell. The numbers are significantly up in the last 10 years, in particular, almost double in the last 10 years. It wasn't this way before that. Yet with all this, with all this the Bible talks about it a ton, and, and Jesus talked about it more perhaps than any other subject in the Bible, but most don't realize that. And here's another alarming statistic I read in this study. 71% of students in the top eight leading seminaries preparing for ministry do not believe in a literal hell or heaven. And here is the reason, and listen to me carefully. If you do not believe in hell, you cannot believe in heaven. It's axiomatic. Uh, There's a system of rewards uh, and consequences. Uh, And so the same book, you know, that that taught us about heaven, the Lord taught us about heaven, taught us about hell. And in my opinion, in my opinion, to deny hell is to deny Jesus and the scriptures. And so I just, I want... I'm going to stand before God. The Bible actually says, and I'll talk about this more next week, but it says in James 3.1, he who teaches will be judged more strictly. 
There's actually degrees of judgment. We'll talk about D-Day next week and kind of what that looks like. But I actually will have a, a different level of judgment from you. Doesn't that make everybody want my position? I mean, sign me up for that. Uh, but, you know, Deej is like, I wouldn't have been installed <laughs> if I had known that. I might have waited a while. You know what I mean? But if you deny the reality of hell, you fall into t traditionally one of five groups. I want to give these to you quickly. These are five. This is kind of like basic theology. All right? These are kind of five groups who do not believe. Two of them are kind of packaged together. The first one is atheists. Atheists, people who don't believe in hell or a god. They believe, we're, they believe we evolved from nothing, and then we ultimately just die and, and, and cease to exist kind of six feet underground, and that's it, that's all. Um, and, and it's interesting, that position. I could go on, on about that. But I, I want to make a statement that may shock you. Atheists don't believe in God. I actually don't believe in atheists. Uh, here's why. I actually believe it is in, in, in consolidating actually believe that it's scientifically impossible to be an atheist. And to explain this, I need to explain the difference between atheism and agnostic, and an agnostic or Gnosticism. Agnostics have the root word Gnostic or Gnosticism in it. Gnostic comes from the Greek word Gnosko, which means knowledge. And agnostic, which is kind of like the antithesis of knowledge, it says, I don't, it's basically the person is saying, an agnostic is saying, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if there's a God, or I am without beliefs, A, knowledge. I'm without knowledge of that. And, and I believe you can make that statement. I believe that is a, uh, an honest and sincere statement. But atheists say there is no God. An agnostic says, I don't believe, I, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure, I don't have any beliefs. And an atheist says, there is no God. And, and the reason they can't make that statement is because in order to make that statement, you have to have obtained or hold all knowledge uh, and, and, and a human being cannot have all knowledge. In fact, scientists say that um, a human being, the smartest human beings on the planet, the smartest of all, you know, people like my brother-in-law, you know, and Deej, you know what I mean? Like really smart people, that two, they can hold the most, 2% of all knowledge on the earth today. In other words, think about this, all history, you know, everything that ever happened in the world over time. I mean, that's a lot to know. Um, all languages, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of, all culture, all science. The most we could possibly hold is 2%, 2%. You know, how much, you can turn to your neighbor and say, how much do you possess? How much do you possess? Turn to your second choice and say, I don't think you possess that much. <laughs> I was sharing this one time with an atheist, and, and we were having a conversation, ironically, it was at my second church, the gym, and I said, we were talking about this, and I said, you can't be an atheist, and he said, what do you mean? I said, in order to say that there is no God, you have to possess all knowledge, and again, the smartest people, they, they, they only have about 2% at the most of all knowledge, and so so I said to him, it, it, it said to this guy, is there a chance that in the 98% of the knowledge that you do not possess that God exists? And he said, well, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess there is a chance. And I said, well, then you can't say that anymore. You can't say, I don't know there is a God. And he said, well, okay, I don't know if there isn't a God then. And I said, okay, well, so you're not an atheist. You're an agnostic. And, and he said, well, I, I guess you're right. I guess I don't know. And I said, do you want to know? Because I know. <laughs> And so I proceeded to tell him about the Lord, and it was an awesome conversation. The Bible says in Psalm 51, it says, only a fool says there is not a God. Psalm 51.3. So that's kind of, 
atheists, agnostic, again, people without any beliefs. The third area is annihilationist. It's kind of a big word. You have, probably have to look on your outline or screen to spell that one. Sometimes it's called conditional immortality, annihilationists. These are believers, uh, they, they believe believers, excuse me, go, but unbelievers are no more. They just kind of cease to exist. They, they are no more. They believe they are annihilated. Some believe it happens in hell. Some don't. They, they misuse the scripture from the book of Matthew chapter 10 that says, uh, verse 28, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. They take one scripture and they pull it out and, they, and that's how they form uh, their annihilationist theory. That, that, and let me just say this, that, that it, it takes a lot to, a lot of times, sometimes communicate certain things, but it is irresponsible to take a singular scripture when you have a, um, uh, your own uh, bias, uh, uh, agenda, uh, presupposition, and then you introduce that to a singular text. That's called eisegesis, E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S, eisegesis, and it is very dangerous to build doctrine on eisegesis, and so people use scriptures to prove a presupposition, and that's you have to take into account the full counsel of God, and the full counsel of God meaning there's more scripture to reveal that the doctrine of hell is real. And so annihilationists, uh, that's what they do. Another category is ultimate reconciliationists. Hang on, I know this is intellectual, but it'll build. Ultimate reconciliationists is another group, the fourth group. They believe ultimately that everybody will be reconciled back to God. Ultimately, everyone will be reconciled back to God. They do believe people go to hell, but it's dependent on how bad you were on earth. It's a works-based thing. In other words, if you do more bad on earth, you spend more time in hell. And so hell is a purifying place, or it is a place of preparation for heaven. In fact, they believe that ultimately, believe it or not, they believe ultimately that Satan will be reconciled back to God. So ultimate reconciliationists. Um, here's an upgrade from that, and this is a fast um, uh, exploding category, universalists, universalists. This is a huge uh, growing population, in particular in the last 10 years. As I was mentioning, the increase in, in numbers of people who have rejected the doctrine of hell, this is the fastest growing group, and it is fundamentally because there of the question that I posed in the first message of this series. Why would a loving God send anybody to hell? Their, their response to that, which is very different than what I gave you, uh, is why people are moving into this category. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And so uh, many pastors today have been deceived into this category. My, my actual pastor in college uh, fell into this category 10 years after uh, I left uh, the university. He was a powerful man of God. And, um, but it's because of this question. And um, anyway, uh, you need to know this, and you need to be able to answer that question again well, so please get the CD on that. But they take that lie that says Jesus died on the cross. for They, they believe that Jesus died on the cross for everyone's sin, but they take choice away. They take free will agency out of the equation completely, and they believe everyone will ultimately go to heaven, and, and, and Adolf Hitler, and Stalin, and the terrorists of 9-11, and the Boston bombings, etc., and if you were to take this to its ultimate extreme, when those people were flying on that plane in 9-11, and they crashed into that uh, building, uh, the terrorists and the, the believers were both in the presence of God in the same moment. They were, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. 
uh, but that is a common, they believe no one goes to hell and free will is obsolete. So those are kind of the uh, five major categories. But now I want, again, you to see it through Jesus' eyes. And so I'm going to tell you a story from Luke chapter 16. Are you tracking with me so far out there? Okay, so Jesus ends the debate about whether hell is real or not. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version primarily. This is Luke chapter 16, uh, and it's called The Rich Man and Lazarus. Verse 19, um, I think I'm going to go through verse something, something. I'll figure it out when I get there. There was a certain rich man, certain, if you're, if you're able to do this, circle, underline that word, certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain, underline or circle that, beggar named Lazarus, Lazarus, full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that, that, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to, watch this now, Jesus is talking here, to Abraham's bosom. Was Abraham a real person, yes or no? Yes, he was. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments, remember that word, it's going to come up four different times, several kind of different meetings in the Greek, but, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. You can see kind of two categories or two areas, Hades and Lazarus' bosom. I'll come back to that and explain more in a bit. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented, again there's that word the second time, in this flame, circle that word. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. There's that word torment again a third time. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf, this is that separation, Fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify, tell them, talk to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. There's the fourth time that word is used. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let me tell you something about this story. This is not, this is something that most people don't realize when they're reading this, though there are parables all throughout the scriptures, 38 parables in the New Testament. This is not a parable. This is, this is a real and true story Jesus is telling. It is not a simile, if those of you are... Bible thumpers or whatever. It, 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 a simile is, Jesus would say, it is like. It is like. That's a simile. Okay? A parable is not an actual story. It's an analogy or an illustration. He says, often he says, there was a certain individual man. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus. It wasn't the Lazarus sometimes that you're thinking of. Uh, Lazarus was a very common name. It was like saying John or Paul or Bob. It was a common name. No offense to all those people who have that name. I think it's a great name. Um, needed a little bit of levity there. But anyway, um, he, what Jesus does in this story is he ends all debate. And here's some things to fill in the blanks in your notes. Hell is real. 
This story clearly reveals it's real. Many people don't realize this. Jesus is talking here, and he's talking about a real story, real people, certain people, certain individuals. And so this should, if you understand it correctly, interpret it correctly, and look it up on your own, don't look it up on Google, okay? You interpret Bible from Bible. If you don't understand how to interpret Bible, then you need good biblical interpretation rules to help you understand how to interpret scriptures, so many people don't realize this, but Jesus is talking here. It ends the, the debate about the existence of hell. It's a true story about a specific certain man in hell. Another, th another thing we see in this story is hell is a place of fire. Jesus says, in this flame. Actually, 32 times it was referred to as a place of fire. It means unquenchable, unending, everlasting, lake of, flame of, furnace of, fire. 19 times Jesus refers to it as fire. And another thing it says is that hell is a place of torment. That word was used four times in just this one text. And we have the word or variation of the word torment uh, used here. And the Greek word has three different meanings for the word torment. And I'm just going to do them. I know this is painful, but the first is a, torment is, means acute pain, like from a debilitating disease, for example. The second, the second actual definition of the word torment means a rack of torture. That in the, in the, in the uh, biblical times, they would put people like on a rack and would have these like kind of spikes that would go through the rack until, and they would stretch them until their skin would stretch so much that the, that the nails would pierce or the, there would be piercings through their body and ultimately kill them. They gave it this name, this, this torment. That's what it meant. It was the sharp objects. The third describes fire that is hot enough to melt metals. It's an intense fire. And this is the word that Jesus used, torment. These three definitions. And, and according to this story, um, we can discern a few things that happen to a person when he goes to hell. Let me give you those three things that we can discern from this story. Number one, he, this, this rich man, he desired comfort. He desires comfort. Verse 24 says this, Send Lazarus to me that he may dip the tip of his finger in water that I may cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. I want you to notice that he didn't say, can I have a bucket of water or a cup of water, or he didn't ask to dip, dip his own finger. I mean, he, he would just take the tip of Lazarus' finger in water and cool his tongue. He would be happy with that. And remember what we discussed two weeks ago. It's so important that you see this from, from week one. But in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 14, I showed you a, a shift in... Uh, um, in, in the, the, the position of hell, the hell had to be enlarged because people rejected God. Hell was, uh, it had to be enlarged. It wasn't enlarged uh, by design, but by necessity. And remember this, hell wasn't prepared for you. This is what we talked about in week one. Hell, this is so important you know this, hell was not prepared for you. Matthew 25, 41 says that. He was prepared for the devil and his angels. But remember this, heaven was prepared for you. Vanessa was talking a little bit about this this morning. John 14, verse 1 through 6 tells us that heaven was prepared for you and I. Heaven and hell, the, the distinction between the two is, 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 is hell is a place that if we don't want to allow God to pay for our sins, we can pay for them ourselves. It's crazy that we would want to pay for our own sins when Jesus did that for us. And actually to reject that sin offering. If I gave my son for someone and they said, no, I, 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 don't, I don't accept that, I'm going to go ahead and take care of it myself. 
That, that's, that's, that's offensive if I gave my son for people. That's what Jesus did for us. He did, my son is a good boy, but he's not a perfect boy. He'd be the first to tell you that. God's son was perfect. And man said, mm, a lot of man said, not everybody, but a lot of man said that. So he didn't propel, prepare hell for us. He prepared heaven for us. The next thing we can learn or discern from this story is he expressed concern. This rich man expressed concern. He immediately says, please send him to my father's house. Verse 27 and 28, he says, Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Every person at one point uh, will have this thought who is there. I sure hope my kids don't go here. I sure hope my spouse never ends up here. Uh, you know, they might have a thought like this. I, I, I remember so-and-so, and they were a believer, and they went to that church, Connect. I wonder, I wonder if someone from that church would invite my family, my son, my daughter, my loved one to that church, to that vacation Bible bash so my kids could hear the gospel, to that Connect Kids Church so they could hear the gospel, to that Sunday morning worship experience so they could hear the gospel because I don't want them to be here. And, and, you know, and, and he, and, and I think some people might be there and they'll think, you know, they won't do that. They probably won't. They probably won't share that. I remember arguments about politics. I remember arguments about minor doctrines. I remember arguments about far less important things. And I'm here now. You mean to tell me that all I had to do was surrender my life to Jesus, to allow him by faith? in his name and his work to pay for my sins, and I, wouldn't, I could have avoided this place. Please, somebody, please somebody tell them. That's what he's saying. He expressed concern. You see, you may not realize this. Relationships are the most effective method to tell people about Jesus and to avoid hell. Number three, he seeks consolation. Verse 30 and 31, and he said, No, Father, no, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Here's what he's saying. He's trying to tell them that, that if, they, if somebody would rise from the dead, if somebody would rise from the dead and go to them and talk to them, they would believe. And Abraham responds, the father of our faith, and he says, uh, They have Moses and they have the prophets. It's kind of like, you know, the, 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 the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, and, and the prophets, in essence, wrote the other books. We call them the major and the minor prophets. And you got to remember, the New Testament hadn't showed up yet. This is, they, all they had was the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was the Bible. And what, what they're saying here is, what, what Abraham's saying, if, if, you won't, if you won't believe the Bible, you're not going to believe, you're not going to believe. And even if somebody was to come back from the dead, people weren't going to believe. And so someone did rise from the grave, actually, and this scripture is actually a direct reference to Jesus himself in this scripture. And, and you may not realize this, but did you know there's more historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead than Julius Caesar lived? Julius Caesar is so commonly accepted as a real person. We've heard him and read about him in Shakespeare's play and all that kind of stuff, but there's far more evidence that Jesus is who he says he was and did what he said he did, and he rose from the dead and he was resurrected on the third day. But, but why don't people believe 
the Bible? Why don't people believe that, that historical evidence? Because most people just, they just accept or reject it on face value. And so this, this story is describing hell before the resurrection of Christ. And you need to understand that every person who died before the resurrection of Christ, they went to a place of waiting. And, and, and let, let me try to unpack this. There were two locations, two compartments uh, within, with, with, with kind of a chasm between them. One was hell, where people were tormented, and one was Abraham's bosom, a place of waiting where the Old Testament saints were held. And the Bible actually tells us this, and you've, you've read this, but you probably don't put it all together, that before Jesus ascended into heaven after he was resurrected, he first descended into the lower regions got the keys and unlocked the door and released all those Old Testament saints. And actually, for a season on his way back through ascending to heaven, some of those saints were actually walking around on the earth for a little while. You know, Abraham's walking around. He's like, hey, I played baseball over there, you know, and uh, there's a Mickey D's there now. That didn't used to be here. That used to be, you know, a trough, you know, whatever. And, and, and all that, so he went down, descended, and he, and, and, he, and he opened up, and he took people out of Abraham's bosom. Are you tracking with me? Jesus said to the thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so this is, this is before the resurrection, this story. But there's also a future hell after the second coming of Christ. Is everybody tracking with me out there? And the Bible tells us some things about future hell or eternal hell that you need to know. And I'm going to give you some Bible on that and kind of prove that to you. But first, I want to tell you, there are two physical properties, and I really want you to grasp this so that you have an excellent contrast. You can understand a lot about heaven. Sometimes you understand a lot of the benefits and rewards in this life by understanding some of the consequences and the negatives in this life. Does that make sense? So if you want to have unity, then you want to have the benefits of unity for a team, a, ch a church, an organization. You have to understand sometimes the enemies of unity. And so to really appreciate and understand and look forward to, anticipate and invite people to heaven, you really sometimes need to understand what hell is like. All right? And so there are, there are two physical properties that keep us mentally stable. And uh, this is kind of a scientific side or scientific fact. The first things, two things that keep us uh, stable, uh, one is light. Everybody say light. Light keeps us mentally stable. The second one is solid, solid. Light helps us keep our bearings. Even blind people, for the most part, can see a certain amount of light. They can't maybe focus and see everything, but they have a certain amount of light, and that helps them keep their bearings. And, and it's something that, we are, uh, that, that helps us mentally. And please understand, they're in future hell, in eternal hell, post-coming, second coming of Christ, there's no light in hell. The, describe, the, the Bible describes hell as outer or utter darkness. It's completely dark. In fact, the Greek word for this is blackness. It, it's, it's far from a party. I was trying to figure out a way to describe this. And I remember watching some movie. I don't remember the, the name of it, but people were diving into these caves. And they were going under the earth. And they were going to these chasms. And they, had, they were divers. And they had flashlights and headlights and all that kind of headlights that, you know, the, you know what I mean, head flashlight things. And they're swimming. And it's without that flashlight or that headlight, it is, when I say black, I mean black. And they're swimming. There's no, there's nothing solid around them. I mean, they, they would lunge for, for long distances before they could find a wall, or they could find, you know, a place to kind of rest their feet or whatever. It's completely dark. And I can remember this one time, one scene where, and, it, and I mean, I'm watching it. I'm not even there. And there's some kind of weird creature in this cave. 
I mean, some, you know, extraordinary, alien-like, freakish creature that could threaten their lives. And right as this creature is approaching them, they're flashed, they're, they're partnered up, by the way. They had to, like, go in teams. And so they're kind of hanging on to each other or touching each other in some way. And, and they've got this flashlight going on, and the flashlight goes out right as this creature is coming to get them. I mean, I totally panicked. And they, they show you just enough to see the, the guy squeezing the guy's hand as hard as he possibly could. And, and they're totally panicking, and he's shaking his light and shaking his light, trying to get, get that thing back. Total, utter darkness. And with that comes, and they showed many scenes of this, panic, mental anguish. There, there may be nothing actually going wrong, but it would cause sometimes tremendous panic and anguish. And, and, and this is not sufficient, but it's the closest I can to come to what hell would be like in this regard. You'll never see anyone or talk to anyone. And please understand, this story from Luke 16 is not eternal hell. It's, it is uh, Abraham's bosom versus uh, the Old Testament Old Testament saints versus a place of waiting hell. But after, this, is, this hell in eternity, there's no interaction with people. It's separation from the presence of God, the opposite of heaven. Heaven, by the way, has no sun because the sun of God lights heaven. It's the presence of God that actually brings light to heaven. God's presence is light. In, in hell, there is no light because God's presence is taken from there. It is utter Darkness. Matthew 8.12 says, But the son of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Solid, being able to hold or grab or sit down or walk or touch or find something. That it's so important to stay mentally stable, to have something solid. No matter how hard you, you lunge or you reach for something, to find something solid. These two physical properties are not in hell, and they'll, they, they're so important for us being mentally sound. So it would be mentally horrible. This describes hell. In Revelation 9, you can look it up on your own, 11, 17, verse 20, it describes hell as a bottomless pit. You just, it just, it's just free-falling, and it's not a party. The two properties that keep us not just mentally stable but emotionally stable are this, rest and hope. Everybody say rest and hope. I know many of you think rest is a physical property, and surely it is, but it is also an emotional property. Think about it. Don't you get grumpy when you're tired? I can remember when we had young kids, and I was young in marriage and not quite as mature as I am today. Uh, my wife, she would see me getting all fired up and kind of, you know, grumpy or whatever, and she'd say, you need a, you need a nap. That was kind of a common thing to say, you need a nap. You know, you, and so me and the little kids, we go off to our room to take a nap, you know what I'm saying? Because I was grumpy, you know? And, and, and sometimes it only takes, I just learned this on the mission trip, running around with all these young people, you know, sometimes they just need a 20-minute power nap just to come back and just to be restored and just to be able to handle some of the stress. And, and, and some of the stress can be even good sometimes, but, but that's hell. There's no rest. Never. Never. Revelation 14, 11 says, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Hope. There's no hope. On this earth, there's always hope. On this earth, there's always hope. You may not realize this, but a person, this is such an epidemic in our world today, but a person who commits suicide, and I, and I, and I say this with all sensitivity, but it's someone who, who I believe Satan has convinced something is true on earth that is actually true in hell. He has conceived, he has a lie, he has convinced that person that they have no hope uh, here on earth. But as long as you're breathing, as long as you're alive, you can turn to God. 
But in hell, you can't. There is no hope. And let me make this very clear. Every person at some point in hell, I, I wrestled saying this, oh, Jesus. But when, 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 when in hell, when you have been there 10,000 centuries, I, I, you would say, I, I, you would think, I have not one less second to be in this place because hell is forever. So we have this life to turn away from that. I'll share one more thing as I describe hell, and you probably can't wait for this to be over, and I can't either. But one more thing to describe hell, and it's not in your notes, that Jesus used. He used a description that no person ever used. The Jewish people all understood it when he talked about it. That's why context is so important. But he used the word to describe hell, and the, the word was Gehenna. Gehenna. The valley of Henna or Henum, depending on whether you're coming from a Chaldean standpoint or Hebrew standpoint. But if you were in King David's kind of citadel, you could see the old city, Jerusalem. And, and, and on the south side, there would be, uh, there would be this area, Gehenna. And the, it was a valley where there was continual burning, round-the-clock burning. And, and in, in certain seasons, uh, well, they would burn the refuse from the city, but when there was a drought or there was a plague or something like that, when poor people would die and did not have enough money to be buried, they began burning the bodies of poor people, and they would put them in this valley, the valley of Gehenna. And I'm sorry this is so graphic, but in that place, you could smell burning flesh. And there's something else you need to know. When they were talking out, and they were when Jesus was talking about this, he would... There was, a, there was a particular practice that the Israelites learned from the Babylonians and the Chaldeans at seasons where they would sacrifice children to the god of Molech. And there were actually two instances in Scripture where you can read about this, where it was Ahaz, King Ahaz, and King Manasseh actually did this. They would sacrifice children, and they would do this at this particular location. They would offer their children in the valley of Henna. And, and I told you this was a tough message, but... What I'm about to tell you is even worse. They made their children walk into the fire and, and alive, and they burned them alive. And sometimes they would whip the children to get them to go. And Jesus uses a phrase that every person understood, and he says, it's like Gehenna, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And these young boys and girls would be so afraid and so much pain. And Jesus said, I'm trying to tell you this is, this is where he's coming from. Please, I don't know how to do this. But he's saying, to the best of my ability, I am trying to tell you what it's like so you never have to go there. And none of us ever have to go there. Ever. And I want to give you a totally ludicrous illustration as I conclude it. If you, it's ludicrous. It doesn't even do it justice. And I don't know how to do it justice. But if you were to drive home today, and this has happened to me before, um, years and years ago. But if you were to drive home today and your neighbor's house was on fire, what would you do? We would all do the same thing. We would call 911, call for help, and if possible, if safe, maybe if not even safe, we would try to run into the house to save whoever is there. And, and none of you would see your neighbor's house on fire, drive by, pull into your garage, and have the thought, someone else will save them. Someone else will take care of them. Someone else will deal with that. No one would say, 
Well, I'll just pray for them. And prayer is important. In fact, when it comes to witnessing, prayer is the first thing we need to do. You, you pray for people. But at some point, we have to tell people. And I'm so proud of some people in this room who, who would risk offense because they care. See, I think, I, in some respects, I risk losing, I don't know, maybe nobody, maybe a lot of people over something like this. That's, that's why the devil would plague me. But I care more about those people than I do my own reputation or the own, my own population or following. Romans 10 tells us, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him who they have not heard, and how can they listen unless someone tells them? We have to tell them. You know, your neighbor's house may not be on fire, but in a way, your neighbor is. And if he doesn't know the Lord, he can possibly go to a place of torment, fire, and eternal separation from the presence of God for eternity. And I think we have, I have, I'm playing my role the best I know how this morning, a role to play with that. My best friend when I was in high school, uh, he was awesome. He was a better Christian as a Jew than I was as a Christian. He lived a, he lived a godly life. His values and he... Uh, he was a tremendous athlete. He was the valedictorian of our class. Uh, he was my hero. And he, uh, he ended up going to Harvard. He graduated with a 4.0 from Harvard, uh, hired an engineering firm. At 23 years old, he was making six figures. This was many years ago. Moved to Michigan to an engineering firm. Uh, an incredible football career, by the way, as well. And I remember the call that I got one day when he was, he was engaged to be married, and at an intersection... Driving home from a work event, he was struck by another car and killed instantly. And I can remember being at his funeral, which, by the way, was a closed casket, and there was no way to kind of say goodbye. I remember showing up and thinking, I never told him. And I thought, I am never going to let that happen again. And can I be honest with you? Have I let that happen again? Yep, a lot. More times than I... I'd like to remember, because I don't like talking about this stuff, and I don't know how to sometimes talk about this stuff. But if the Bible's true, and I think it is, and if heaven's real, and I know it is, then I think hell is real. And I think we have to do everything in our power to make sure nobody goes there. Would you stand on your feet and let me pray for you? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Please. Just listen to my voice and just let God speak to you. If you're here today, I urge you, if you don't know Jesus personally, you can. It's, it's, it's easy to come to know him. It's not easy to follow him, but it is easy to come to know him. He can't wait. He did all that he did. He went out of his way so that you could have a relationship with him. And you don't have to accept this message fully, but please don't reject him because of it. Please don't reject Jesus because of it. And I'm going to pray with you, and anyone that wants to pray this prayer, I'm going to give you that opportunity to do so. But So you have 100% assurance. I want to encourage you, if you never made that decision after we dismiss, to come down front and pray with one of our leaders. In fact, I'm going to ask our leaders to come down now just to be available. 
up. Make sure. Be, be certain. You can be certain. We can give you things that make it absolutely crystal clear. And, and, and that's our motivation. That's why we exist. We exist to make sure you're in right standing with God. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He made a way. In this messed up, cursed world, he made a way through his son so that you could have a relationship with him and you never have to have any fear or nothing that I'm saying. I feel like a doctor who has the facts about an incurable disease. I've been given a certain amount of information and I'm looking at this information and I'm saying, yep, you are destined to die. But... There is a solution, there is a cure, there is a surgery of the heart that can alter that permanently. And some people will say, okay, I accept that. And some people will get offended because of the doctor's report. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you as an as, as a, as a instrument, like a doctor, I'm just saying, it's just a fact. It, but yet there's, there's a solution. There's a cure. There's an answer. Don't, don't reject that. Don't reject that. If you're here today... Every head bowed, every eye closed, please. Between me, you, and God. You're here today, and you, you're not certain. You want to make sure that you are in right standing with God, and that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We'll talk about that next week. Would you raise your hand and say, I need to know that for sure. I don't want to miss it. I'm not going to go another day without knowing that for certain. That's me. Just say, that's me. Amen. Praise the Lord for this saved group of people. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that every person that heard my voice, if they don't know you, they'd come to know you. They wouldn't go another day. they make sure. Lord, for those who do, I pray that they realize that though somebody's house is not on fire, people are on fire. And we need to be a witness. And when the opportunity pops up, we need to speak up. And we need to share the good news, not the bad news. We need to share the good news with an awareness of the bad news. That God came for us, and that he's prepared a place for us, and he wants to be with us forever, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen and amen. I hope next week you'll come back and hear more. I promise it won't be as heavy as that, but it'll be good. Amen? amen. Have a great afternoon. God bless you. Guys, leave, please. I'm sorry. I'm um, sorry. It's okay. Um, connection cards. Maybe you, you have that prayer and you didn't feel like coming up or whatever, or maybe you've got a uh, praise report to give. Please fill out a connection card and put it in the rear of the sanctuary. Uh, C101 is tonight, and also small groups. Sign up for a small group. Go to, go to our website. Uh, it's never too late to get into a small group. We'll see you all later. Thanks.